You're tuned in to the Nonprofit Chatter, brought to you by Nonprofit Pro with our friends at Pursuant. New T and Taylor Shanklin are getting real and sitting down with nonprofit leaders to chatter about issues affecting nonprofits today. Be sure to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss these conversations with your nonprofit peers. And check us out on the web at nonprofitpro.com slash podcast slash nonprofit hyphen chatter. Chatter Podcast, hosted by me, New T, Editor-in-Chief of Nonprofit Pro. And me, Taylor Shanklin, VP of Marketing at Pursuant. The Nonprofit Chatter will give you an insider's look on the most pressing challenges facing nonprofit leaders and fundraisers today. And we'll discuss how nonprofits can overcome those challenges. In each episode, we'll engage in invigorating conversation with industry leaders and find out what tools and tactics nonprofits need in their repertoire to make their vision become a reality. So this is exciting. In episode number 11 here today at the Nonprofit Chatter, we are going to discuss mass market fundraising. In this episode, we'll be joined by Michaela Reed, Marketing Director at Doctors Without Borders, and Jennifer Vilet, Executive Vice President of Client Strategy at Pursuant. Hi, Michaela and Jennifer. I'm so excited to have you both on today. Thank you so much for joining us in the Nonprofit Chatter. I'm looking forward to chatting about mass market fundraising. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me too. Awesome. That's so great to hear. But before we get started, Michaela, can you tell us more about Doctors Without Borders? So I'm Michaela Reed. I'm the marketing director at Doctors Without Borders USA. So I lead the team responsible for mass market fundraising and direct response under 5,000 a year cumulative. So that includes entry-level donors, mid-level giving, sustainers, um, and prospect branding lead generation. For us, audiences are the primary and then all of our channel goals feed those audience goals. So I also oversee digital, um, direct mail, events, and, and donor services as well. So it's a, it's a big group. Um, Altogether, Doctors of Borders USA raises nearly 400 million a year in private funds. Um, that was last year. And my team's responsible for about half of that. Um, but for most of our active donors, so more than 700,000 active donors. Um, one thing I'd like to say, one thing that sets us apart from other organizations that's a bit different is we're independent. So we focus primarily on unrestricted giving from private donors. You can't even restrict a gift on our website. There's no drop down and we don't take any government funding. So that's part of how we do our work, but also part of how we raise our money, which means that there's an even greater pressure to raise the funds, but that there's no strings attached um, on them. So we like to say that, you know, we can use the money um, where the needs are greatest because it's not earmarked um, and lets us bring care to those in need. So, Um, One thing that I think is true of other INGOs too, is that we used to just kind of a general trend. We used to see big growth in high profile emergencies like the Haiti earthquake in 2010, Ebola emergency in West Africa in 2014, 2015, Syria, Yemen. We still work in massive emergencies. We're still in Yemen. You know, we're, 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 um, we're uh, involved in fighting outbreaks in Democratic Republic of Congo of both measles and Ebola, but they're not in the headlines. So I think it'll be interesting this conversation to talk about how you, we grow in non-emergency years um, through how we invest our funds, time, and energy. Awesome. So it sounds like you guys have a lot of experience in this area. So to kick things off, um, Michaela, can you talk about some big trends you're seeing this year? 
in mass market fundraising? Sure. So again, it, it goes back to like, we need to grow without an emergency, without media coverage. So that's about investing funds, time and energy as smartly as possible um, to, to go for sustainable long-term fundraising. And so one thing I hear a lot from peers is this, we're, is we're, many of us are doing increased focus on sustainer growth, not just like growing sustainer programs incrementally, but growing recurring giving in an accelerated way. Um, we all have PTSD from December. And one thing that really hit home to us in December is how vulnerable we are to the whims of the market and to whether donors feel they can give or, get, or not give at any given time. Because when you're a one-time donor, you have to make an active choice to give. Whereas if you're a committed sustainer, if you're a committed recurring donor, you would have to actively choose not to give. It's the other way around. Those donors stick with us. So for us, we're really investing in sustainer growth. And I hear the same from a lot of peers. We still have to meet one-time targets, but we want to grow sustainers as a percentage of our file, right? So one thing I like to think of with one-time donors, it's almost like you're living towards an uncertain paycheck, like you're a freelancer and you're not sure where your next gig is going to come from. But when you have sustainers, you're on salary. You know how many of them will retain. You know what to do to keep them. And they'll keep giving to you over and over again. You have a salary you can predict. Um, you have an umbrella for those rainy days if December is really hard. Uh, so that's one thing. And, and that relates again to one of the other trends is, you know, we're not the only nonprofit who's dealing with um, decreased media intention um, and, you know, really having trouble to being heard above the noise. So that just goes into like, people need to be, fundraising has to be even more active, even more strategic. It's you know, we have to fight harder for every dollar. Um, sometimes we feel like we're, we're paddling harder, but we're staying in place. So, um, you know, everyone I talk to seems to be migrating to new CRM and marketing cloud tech, but yet also struggling to realize the full promise of that technology. You know, we hear so much about what it could do for us, but often the pain of those technology transformations um, and the, the challenges they require, like how do you actually realize the potential of these new systems? Because if you don't have great processes and strategies and um, plans and resources and capabilities going in to actually use it properly and train on it properly, you're just gonna get garbage in, garbage out. Um, hiring is something I hear from a lot of other peers that you know, some of us are struggling, are trying to scale. We're trying to increase the size of our fundraising teams, our digital teams, but unemployment on the good side is relatively low and people are struggling to recruit and build teams. Um, it takes, it's taking longer to hire. We're finding that, you know, we're trying to fill positions in digital operations, mid-level canvassing, telemarketing. We're getting great hires, but the timeline is much longer. So trying to plan for the resources you need to meet your goals, you have to plan so far in advance, right? If you're gonna scale. Um, and of course, as usual, mail is not dead. Um, it's far from it. But another question that this is not new is discussing how we mix the investments. I heard a lot of peer organizations have pulled back a lot on mail. Like they've had to move money out of mail to put into digital. For us, we've actually just either kept mail flat or kept increasing it because it's our cash cow. It's where the largest chunk of our money comes from. But I've been thinking a lot, like if we were to start from a zero based budget, you know, if we, what, how do we actually know what the best mix of investments is as opposed to just tweaking what we've done each year? So those are just some of the things that I find myself talking about a lot with peers. Jennifer, I don't know, you know what you're hearing. 
Yeah, so, so you're right. Attribution is one of those things that's elusive for most organizations and it's becoming increasingly um, more difficult as there's more and more channels in which um, you can, you know, fundraise and market your brand. And so I think, um, you know, it's difficult to then know exactly where to put those investment dollars. And oftentimes um, you see organizations um, maybe with the lack of information on attribution, actually advancing strategies that are not in the best interest of their organization. So I think that's that's a real challenge that's, that's absolutely out there. Um, I and think Jennifer, if I could just jump off of that um, for a second. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think sometimes organizations will start on a strategy that looks good for the first couple of years, but then a few years later they find their file has eroded and they're not acquiring enough long value, donors with long-term value. But also, yeah, so it's, it's really hard. Yeah, I think, I think the industry um, for a great many years has um, been too focused on the short term and not enough attention to sort of the long term or the, the long ball game, if you will. You know, unfortunately, that's coming back to roost. So donor files are continuing to shrink. That's a trend that we're seeing um, most certainly in, in the mass market fundraising area. And acquisition is, you know, more and more difficult. And so, you know, some of the areas that I think are starting to get um, long overdue attention is in the area of retention and um, that concept of donor loyalty. So, you know, yeah. talking with a number of clients that uh, Pursuant serves, you know, um, the words that we're hearing are, you know, donor journey or the donor experience and trying to um, understand how to create an experience that's going to ultimately drive that loyalty or, or that um, coveted charity of choice in the, in the mind of the donor. And so that's, that's something that we're, we're seeing a little bit more um, focus and, and yes. I'm glad to see that. And we're, we're totally, we're a great, I think we're a good example of that. We've, um, we've spent a lot of time looking at donor journeys and the donor experience for, especially for our, our most valuable audiences, our mid-level donors and our sustainers. You know, we've done interviews and focus groups and surveys with them to try to get a sense of what really resonates with them. How do we actually develop a long-term relationship with them instead of viewing them as ATM machines? Like what, in, what inspires them to stay committed to us and to come back and you know, year after year and maybe to upgrade and increase their giving and put us in their wills, et cetera. So, um, and we're starting to build out like both in terms of donor journeys of what they're experiencing now, but we're also trying to build like, what are those better donor journeys? Like what would that look like? Especially when you start to use technology like marketing cloud, but it's, it's all a work in progress. And it's so hard sometimes to find time to step back and map a donor journey when you're trying to meet your monthly revenue targets. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think when it comes to mapping a donor journey that can't be done in silos. So, you know, irregardless of sort of the area that you oversee, um, you know, we can't control where, where donors move um, across an organization. And so that oftentimes requires collaboration across department lines. And um, sometimes that can make it very, very difficult to, um, to develop and then sustain a, a journey for, for donors. Yeah, and, and, and the hard part I think is like, you know, everyone talks has been talking about busting silos for decades. Part of the challenge is like silos are efficient. A lot of times people end up working in their silo because it's faster and easier than collaborating. But then in the end, it's you kind of you're losing all those opportunities of having a consistent, excellent donor journey. But you can get this thing through faster without needing sign off from X, Y and Z. 
Um, and there's also like collaboration has to be strategic. If everyone spends all their time in collaboration meetings, then you don't execute. But if you don't have those key points of collaboration and alignment, if you're talking to donors differently in, in email than you are in the mail, and you know, like you have to find that collaboration, that strategic collaboration that will really help as opposed to just sitting in all of each other's meetings all the time. Yeah, another, another trend that I wanna bring forward is um, what we're seeing sort of on the, in the online space or the digital realm. And um, this sort of caught my interest when um, some of the, the traditional benchmarking reports um, have started to come out. And, you know, we're starting to see some fatigue in email marketing. Yes. And, and that, um, you know, it, it's, it's not too surprising, right? Um, I think we've all, we all personally experienced the overload in our email boxes and it's, it's not unlike um, what it used to be like in the physical mailbox. But I think the good news or headlines there are that there are other things that are um, taking, taking its place. So in the case um, that, that Michaela mentioned right out of the gate, um, sustained giving, right? So we're seeing increases there. Um, also, um, or some organizations are finding success with Facebook fundraising. So there's, you know, obviously some emerging things um, within the digital realm, but I do think um, because email marketing tends to be the workhorse in the digital space, it is something that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, so I, I, I'm curious, what do, you what do you see as the future of email, Jennifer? We've talked a lot about this too, like has email hit its ceiling and is it now gonna start, you know, is there, what more is there to be done? Like you can't bring more money out of the same audiences typically with email. So, but there's only so much you can grow your email audience and the response rates aren't anything like direct mail response rates. So what do you see as the, the future role of email? Yeah, so I, I you know, I, I like to think of um, various channels sort of um, being a, an orchestra, if you will, right? To create that beautiful fundraising music, you have to have all those different channels opening open and um, actually um, working in harmony with one another. Um, you know, we see oftentimes that you know a direct mail piece will actually drive a donation online. I think um, likewise, yes. something in email can force um, reinforce either something that's come in the mailbox, or um, frankly, somebody might just see the email and they write you a check. So, you know, I don't think, um, just like people said, direct mail is gonna die. Um, email's still gonna be, I think, a, a part of the mix. But I think there will be something else that comes along that, that maybe, um, you know, diverts some giving into that respective area. But I, I do think email continues to play an important role in brand building and fundraising and will for some time. Yeah, no, I, and I agree, but the, I think the challenge is just, it's not the last click moneymaker. So, you know, for us, for example, we noticed that um, it's great, obviously it's a great tool for engagement. We do raise funds from it, especially at year end. Um, and we use it for quizzes and for surveys and for just lots and lots of cultivation um, and letting people know what's happening on the ground. We find that some of our highest value donors, like our mid-level donors, for example, they open almost every email they receive. They just, but they don't give through those emails but we get checks from them that come separately or they're giving through a donor advised fund or they you know, are just sending in an old reply envelope they had or they're just making, later they're going on and making their gift just on the website. Yeah, I think, I think you, you, you mentioned it. I think we have to expand our minds to think about email just not for solicitation, but also for um, engagement activities or a vehicle to actually do some active listening 
uh, to our donors um, to learn more about them and what they're interested in. And so, you know, if you, if you think about it um, in, in that perspective, um, you know, it continues to add value, right, in, in driving um, greater donor engagement and experience um, and, frankly, long-term support if you're doing it the right way. Yeah, it, you mentioned Facebook fundraising. So this is one where I feel like it's both an opportunity but also a threat because again, like our focus is is long-term relationships with our donors, like building commitment and loyalty, not just getting a one-time donation. But with Facebook, I mean, everyone seems to be struggling with like, okay, we're getting more revenue there, but we can't talk to them. Um, we have donors calling saying, hey, I gave you my gift, but it was through Facebook. So we didn't get an acknowledgement. Like, you know, so it's, what do you, what do you do when your donors like start to disappear from your site, but they're giving you money and you can't talk to them? I know. I, th I think you have to enter that with eyes wide open, right? Know what the limitations are. Um, it's, it's sort of like giving over the transom, right? Uh, but yeah. in a strategic way, um, it, it's not perfect, most certainly. Um, I think a little bit of how um, text to give was, right? At least now there's there's some mechanisms in, in order to get um, some contact information so you can continue that um, relationship. I'm hopeful yeah. that Facebook will evolve to that when they realize sort of the, the limitations that they're putting on nonprofit organizations um, by not allowing them to continue that um, relationship. But if you, you know, if you know what it's, what, what the benefits are and what the limitations are, um, I still think it's a val valuable um, way in which to raise money for an organization. You just have to temper it with um, what, what it can't provide you, which is the opportunity for that longer term relationship. Yeah, I mean, and we can't ignore it because um, I, think, I think I heard that uh, Facebook fundraisers actually brought in more money than organizations did directly on Giving Tuesday, so it's not something to be ignored. Um, we do get revenue from it. We do try to do things like thanking the donors who are hosting Facebook fundraisers for us. Um, you know, just going on and commenting and thanking them for their for their fundraisers. But yeah, it's, it. I mean, and there's other channels. There's this whole question of like disappearing donors also relates to, you know, increased concerns about privacy and people who don't want, you know, who turn off cookies and there's ad blockers and then, you know, GDPR and similar legislation. So you know, so much of marketing's future, like so much of like the future looking stuff in marketing has been about getting to know more about people so you can serve them like just the right message at just the right time that resonates with them. But then some people are like saying like, no, I'm putting on my invisibility cloak and I don't want you to know who I am. So I can't, you know, you can't address them in that personalized way. I love everything that's being said right now. And I think the overarching theme that keeps coming up is, you know, talking about that donor journey and having a strategy in place to make sure your donors are having a great experience. And you both touched on this throughout the conversation so far, but right now we live in a Amazon world and <laughs> expectations for donor experience is higher than ever. Can you share some best practices for managing communications to the masses and how can we authentically reach these audiences and maintain relationships with them? I think that's the struggle right now. Yeah, so, so I can start. Um, this is Jennifer. So, you know, I think um, the key to that is, is frankly following a little bit of, of what Amazon has set as sort of the precedence. It's that 
ability to understand what your donor preferences are and then applying those to strategy. Um, the organizations that are going to thrive will, will be able to, um, to apply that into their programs. I think the thing that makes it tricky is there's just so much data available, right? Not just within the organization themselves, but then you have third-party data that you can um, bring to, to enhance um, your understanding of your donor. And it can be really overwhelming for marketers and almost um, creating a sense of, of paralysis. And so I think um, as it relates to you know, how, how can you kind of cut through that, you have to look at um, things like analytics, right? And innovations around um, data and providing insights that are gonna allow you to kind of um, move towards uh, more enhanced listening capabilities within your organization and you know finding ways to do that um, so that you know the the insights that you glean from that can be um, another data point in which you can um, drive the strategy and the experience i think the more that we can push towards understanding those motivations and those behaviors the better we are going to be able to um, create re relevancy around our brand, as well as those highly personalized messages that um, seem to resonate with, with donors. So, you know, it's not easy work, uh, most certainly. Um, and I think many organizations struggle with that, but I think it's, it's, it's time that we start to put some emphasis around that and just start jumping in and trying to apply some of what we're, we're hearing um, across the organization, not just within, within the um, marketing and direct marketing areas, but you know, taking stock in, in um, customer service when people call into our organizations in the areas of like donor relations, that's the point um, of which we should be capturing data um, that can then be applied. So there's, there's lots of different um, entry points to be able to listen to our constituents. We just have to make sure we get the, um, the processes and the business rules in place to be able to do that and then apply yeah. that in strategy. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, it's interesting. That's one of the reasons that donor services sits in the, in the mass market fundraising team, even though they serve all of the donors for the organization, because we want someone who's listening and talking to donors every day to be at the table when we're planning our marketing. Um, someone who actually hears what they have to say when we send that particular email um, and you know, donors want to be, they're, they're wondering like, do you see me? Do you hear me? Did you notice that I told you that my address had changed or my email is updated or I'd like this kind of thing or this is what I responded to? Um, and they, there is an expectation now that brands have personalities and you have a relationship with them. You can message them on Messenger and you know, you're getting what you wanna hear from them. And they, you know, people aren't donating. I think I remember like, it, some gener certain older generations might have donated to like a list of like, you know, a very long list of charities, like 10 or 12, but maybe they gave them a small amount. But younger people and, and boomers are giving to like a, f a smaller group of like priority charities. They feel like they have a relationship with, they trust them. Um, and, you know, you have to build trust by showing, by showing that you you understand um, and that you're that you are sharing back with them you're not just talking at them I feel like for years and, and still in many pieces we, we can find ourselves like pushing messages out at people and not having a conversation with them not saying 
thank you so much for what you just did. Here was the impact. Like with your help, we did X, Y, and Z. Um, you just gave to this campaign and here's, here's what's going on. So, but, but just, uh, but the, the complexity of it, and you mentioned like the challenge of it, like tying all together, the word is definitely overwhelmed <laughs> because when we like start to get on a whiteboard and map out all the different touch points and plans we have for all of marketing, um, for a given quarter, it just starts to look like a bunch of spaghetti. And how do you, you know, organize the strands and, you know, there's like, you can get too, like you can get so complex now with how individual and variable a journey is, but you also still have to prioritize your time and money. Like you don't want to get stuck on like an audience of 10 people who like to be talked to in a certain way. So there's like, you have to be personalized, but automated at the same time. And you have to be able to focus despite the massive possibilities and options and ideas and things you could do. Like you have to feed your core and you have to innovate. It's like a constant dilemma. You know, I'll add in something. I think that that's a really good point. It is a constant dilemma. And what you said, Michaela, it's like, you can go in, you can get on the whiteboard and then there's like the spaghetti and then that quickly can become overwhelming and you're sometimes back at square one. I think that that's where it's important to take a step back and, you know, to Jennifer's point about data and analytics, it's like, take a look into what's actually working, what the data tells you is working and what's not so that then you can look and like truly prioritize. Okay, we've got the spaghetti on the wall. Now what's actually the most important area to focus on and then start there and then start chipping away at the rest of the spaghetti. Yeah, we talk about like, uh, you know, we talk a lot about like, what is our biggest rock or what's the most important, like, what do we do first, which is just that classic first things first, because, and that, but that also goes for reporting because you can find yourselves like you're drowning in data, but you can also be drowning in reports. You might've generated this, you might've started using one type of report at one time and so you can wind up with like folders and, you know, we have all, certain reports in Power BI and then we have certain reports here and there and like there's reports in Google Analytics and there's reports. And so one thing we're trying to do now too is just get much like different people need different levels of detail to do their work, but what are the metrics that matter the most that we want everyone to be looking at? The top level things and not just the lagging metrics. Like by the time you've made the revenue, it's, you know, that's the lagging metric, but what's, what's, what's happening beforehand that all those things you need to be getting into place in terms of your retention and your long-term value and your, you know, your acquisition numbers um, to be an engagement and all of that to be getting to that place um, where you finally, the money finally comes in. So we're really, we, we're, we struggle back and forth with making our reports more complex and then trying to simplify and organize them. So we're not just spending all our time sifting through, you know, Excel and charts and graphs. Yeah, that that that, that can that can cause a lot of um, internal paralysis and inability to move forward. And I think you do have to hone in on on the, the handful of things that you are going to measure, right, and report out on, and be able to. Um, rally around as an organization, whether that be new donors or um, an increased um, MPS score from, from you know, um, donors. So it's, it's, it's important to, to isolate those so that um, you can move forward and just make sure that um, the efforts that you're putting forward are aligned around the right 
types of um, priorities for your organization. Yeah. Because you can't do everything. You're, you know, nope. resources are limited, um, human as well as financial. So, yeah, I mean, for us, actually, like we, I feel like we have the most limited resources we have are the human resources. You know, we only have so much time and energy um, to do this work. And if we're going to make every dollar go as far as possible, we need to prioritize and be really, really selective. I think that can be the challenge too with like fundraising teams. Our, like the teams, our team is so creative and so curious and we get so excited by different ideas. And so then it's so hard to like kill some of those ideas and say, we can't do them this year. And so we find the hardest part of our planning process and just the ongoing reprioritization is having to say, I'm sorry, this doesn't fit in the jar this year. Like we can do anything, but we can't do everything. What are like, if we do nothing else, what's the first thing we have to do for me? Like if we do nothing else, obviously we have to bring in the revenue, but what are those other things besides the revenue? Well, if we do nothing else, we need to acquire this many tens of thousands sustainers. And then next to nothing else, we increase our website traffic by X. Like we have like two or three top metrics for each kind of area that we're always looking at together. And then of course, each um, program and audience and channel manager looks at much more deep metrics to make sure they're meeting their, tar their targets each week, each month, et cetera. But it really helps to constantly all be saying, okay, you know, this is how many new one-time donors we got this month. This is how many new sustainers. This is where our retention is at. Um, you know, this is how we're doing on uh, lead generation, whatever it is. Yeah, I think understanding the interdependence of, of all of those things is critically important, especially if you if we're focusing on the, the long-term um, uh, view of the organization, right? So, you know, when, when you cut direct mail, what does that do to your plan giving? Um, what does that do to uh, giving online? So like understanding how everything works together and how each of the respective areas um, drives towards the ultimate goal, which would be, you know, revenue towards mission. Um, is important in, in making sure that your priorities are aligned and that you're, you're placing the right short-term bets. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we covered a lot of information today, but I want to switch gears really quick. And, you know, we talked about this on our last episode about the younger generations. They are more focused on building authentic relationships. So can you share some insight about if you're having difficult reaching them through mass market fundraising. Yeah, um, so this is Michaela, absolutely. So our, our typical direct mail and even email and, and web donors are certainly not what you would, you know, they're not millennials or, or Gen Z. Um, they're um, they're, gen, they're uh, boomers, they're Gen X, they're matures, you know, they're, they're younger, our younger donors online are probably more like 50s and 60s, um, but you know our, our average donors are in their 60s. Um, and in direct mail, we have a lot of donors in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so for us, the biggest source of, of, of reaching younger donors is not through mass marketing. Um, they're, they're almost like allergic to advertising now, right? Like they can smell it a mile away. It's through one-to-one -one conversations. Uh, face -to -face, our face-to-face -face fundraising, which we've been really scaling a lot with the sustainer um, goal, brings in people that we don't see anywhere else. They're not overlapping with the people that we're already reaching through direct mail acquisition, through email, through web. Like they're 95, I think 95% of them, I'd have to double check, um, we've never communicated with before. And we're bringing them in through personal one-to-one -one conversations. 
Um, our canvassers are really well trained. They spend time with our aid workers. They really know the stories, the material. Um, they don't chase people down the street, but they try to have like real authentic conversations with them. And that's how we're bringing folks in. Now that, that version of younger, it's not, we're still not talking about people in their twenties necessarily. That's more people in their thirties and forties and fifties, but that's still younger for us. Um, and then on the really younger side, um, we do play the very long game and we have a, a growing student chapter program that um, we have student chapters. I know at over a hundred universities where, I mean, they're not doing a lot of like big money fundraising, but they do a lot of volunteering for us. They help us out at events. Um, and those are certainly our future donors. They're probably, I hope, we hope they're telling their parents and their friends and their relatives about us. They, you know, invite folks to come speak at their school, but that's a growing thing for us as well. Now that's the really long game. It's not generating big revenue right now, but we want to be, you know, reaching those people um, in years to come. Yeah, Mikhail is right. Um, you know, the word younger is sort of relative based on um, the organization and, and kind of what their mix of their donor file is. But, you know, when you think about the, the youngest generation, the, the, the millennials that everyone seems to um, want to be tapping into because they are the largest um, generational cohort out there, um, you have to remember that they're digital natives, right? Um, they don't know a world without um, the web or social media. And so, um, you know, this this will probably sound a little basic, but I think it's worth mentioning um, from a technology perspective, you have to make sure that your mobile experience is top notch. And, you know, there are plenty of organizations that, um, you know, probably could could stand to, to do an audit of that experience. Um, because that's going to be one of the quickest turnoffs, um, you know, from attracting somebody, um, especially a millennial, to your organization. I would add, um, you know, we we mentioned this, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, but the brand, um, you know, from a millennial perspective, it needs to be relevant, it needs to be approachable and human, um, and it needs to have that personality that Michaela mentioned. Um, so again, you know, um, with millennials we no longer um, control the brand, right? They actually um, are, are huge influencers around brands, um, which leads me to sort of, um, you know, a final point, which is social media. Um, you have to leverage that in order to, to reach that, that group of potential donors and especially trying to um, gather up user-generated content. So millennials trust the opinions of their peers and yeah. And you know much more so than um, a brand sort of tooting their own horn. So you know if you're not um, creating a strategy like that, you, you really should. And I guess I, I'll wrap my my thoughts on this by saying that um, you know in this omni-channel world, um, every touch point in the communication mix, you know, around fundraising, is a potential for reaching a younger generation. And in fact, mail for that cohort has actually become the disruptor. So don't discount direct mail um, in reaching, you know, a younger generation. They're, uh, you know, they're walking around with very full um, email boxes and their, yeah. face, their Facebook feed is flowing constantly. And so something that's actually tangible um, creates a little bit of disruption in their day. Yeah, they might not give to the reply device, but they, but we, you know, when we do matchbacks, we see that uh, there's a very large number 
um, like the response rate, like the response rate we're getting in acquisition mail is almost doubled if you look at the matchback to people giving it online. Yeah, I came across a, a statistic that actually shared that millennials and Gen X, um, when surveyed, claim to have donated um, online as a result of direct marketing, you know, roughly at 50%. So, um, yeah, it, it, each channel sort of drives one another. So, not surprised by what, what your matchback is sharing. It all builds on each other when you're thinking about the brand and the long game, as you said, Michaela. Yeah. And I think I read a study recently, too, a couple of them actually, all confirming and saying that millennials are saying, hey, we don't get mail, we prefer it. So I think that, you know, when you hear that, think about, okay, well, how has mail changed? How can we make our mail more innovative? How can we make our mail? Yeah to them more as opposed to how can we just send more mail that we've always sent before yeah we all i mean one other thing too just to speak to reaching our people is we try whenever possible to like go meet people in person um our colleagues and other other dodge the borders sections in other countries like they have they often have smaller areas so it's easy to meet you know everyone but we actually do tours across the country, call them our on the road tours, where we have people who've been out, um, doctors and nurses and logisticians, and going around speaking to different communities, both places where we already have a lot of donors or a lot of supporters, but then places where we don't, and it might be more of a draw. We've had traveling exhibitions. Um, we had a big one about the refugee crisis, and we brought student groups to that. So, you know, we were full, like school buses dropping kids off and like learning firsthand about. Um, the refugee experience and the work we do with refugees. So it's obviously experiential marketing is harder to scale and is more effort, but you know, it can be very impactful. That's a good point. So thanks both of you for joining us. I wanna just unpack and reiterate on a couple of interesting points I heard that each of you make throughout the podcast. So to bring it all together, there are a few things I wanted to highlight again for listeners. One thing was at the very the conversation, Michaela, you reminded us that sustained donors, those are the ones that actually have to make the effort to decide not to give, right? That's different than one-time donors. And so remember, if you're thinking about building out and putting more intention behind a giving program, that's a good idea because those people have to decide to go change and make a change to not give any longer. And then Jennifer, you said something about, you know, not being a donor experience really can't happen in silos. And I know that we hear that a lot and we know that we say that a lot, but it is true. And so thinking through the whole plan together across departments is, is just vital. A couple of other things you guys said is the Amazon experience is so important, but what's tricky is that there's so much data it can be overwhelming, right? And so look for innovation around data and analytics, um, tools that you can use to better listen, to better understand. Michaela, to your point around that, you know, donors really are saying, did you see me? Did you hear me? Did you know that I changed my address? And so listening tools and data tools are gonna become, continue to become more and more important so that we can understand all of that data and then actually do something with it and apply it. And then lastly, to wrap it up, 
kind of the last part of this conversation, you know, focus on face-to-face fundraising. And I like that you called that out, Michaela, and, and the long game with younger generations, I think is good. Um, you know, and to, to really think holistically about your brand and being relevant, approachable, and human. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Appreciate the, the time to be able to, to chat with all of you. Yeah, you guys have been awesome on this podcast. And, you know, like Taylor said, thank you so much for joining us on the Nonprofit ch- Chatter and sharing your insights on mass market fundraising. But unfortunately, that's we're about out of time for today. And I want to thank our listeners for listening in on today's podcast. So on behalf of Nonprofit Pro and Pursuant, we'll see you in the next episode of the Nonprofit Chatter. Have a great day.